0: Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of Coastal States Organization and the host of the Capitol Beach. I'm very excited to be hosting a podcast today on one of the more timely topics uh, we have discussed on the Capitol Beach, and that is the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. They don't often do this, but I think it's important for this conversation to share with you, uh, our listeners, when we are recording, and that is um, Friday, May 21st. And I share that because just yesterday, Uh, Thursday, May 20th, the Biden administration put out an executive order on climate related financial risk in which he reinstated the Obama era federal flood risk management standard. So some of the prep we did for this call was thinking about how this standard might be recreated, whether it could be recreated, what was happening with it. And we actually found this out late yesterday afternoon. So um, we're really coming to you from a a timely perspective where thoughts are evolving, um, but I'm excited to be talking about this topic right now. So uh, briefly, the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard is a a Obama era policy in which um, the federal government established a standard and policies to improve resilience and reduce uh, sort of financial waste um, by investing in infrastructure projects that were happening in floodplains. And we'll get into the details of what exactly this means, why this is particularly important for the coastal zone. And we will be doing so with two really fantastic guests, Joel Scatta, uh, Scata, uh, sorry, from the Natural Resources Defense Council (NRDC), and Chad Berginnis from the Association of State Floodplain Managers (ASFPM). Uh, two, you know, longtime experts in pros and pros in flood policy, and obviously their work intersects closely with coastal policy too. So, really excited to have both of them on the on the show today and, and talking about how this is uh, what it is and, and why this is important. But before we introduce them and introduce the topic anymore, I want to do a shout out to our sponsors.
1: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new coastal resilience department headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today daily blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show.
0: Well, thank you as always to our sponsors. We couldn't put this show on and ASPN couldn't do the fantastic broadcasting and and potting that they do without our sponsors so thank you Um, and then joel chad thank you so much for joining me today i'm really excited about having this conversation with you guys yeah thank you derek uh happy to be here
2: yeah thanks for having us today i appreciate it
0: um and as we said very timely so joel i'm going to turn it to you i gave a one sentence definition of the federal flood risk management standard i hope i didn't butcher it too much why don't you Give our listeners a bit better sense of what uh, of what the FFRMS, the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard, FFRMS, what that is and, and what it
2: does. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. And you didn't butcher it at all. Um, the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard, as you pointed out, was uh, established by President Obama. It was established via ex- Executive Order 13690. Uh, and what the Executive Order and the standard do are to encourage um federal investments to be built with a higher margin of safety against flood risk, especially future flood risk. Uh, The executive order and the flood standard are actually um, an improvement upon a executive order, uh, executive order 11988 that was issued by President Carter in the late 70s. And What Executive Order 11988 did was um, establish that any federal investments in infrastructure that would occur in the 100-year floodplain first had to be determined whether or not um, they could be located outside the 100-year floodplain. And if they couldn't be practically located outside the 100-year floodplain, then they had to be built to the height of that 100-year floodplain. Since then, uh, a lot more has been learned about the impacts that climate change is having on our flood risk and that uh, using basically historical assessments of uh, uh, what flood risk uh, entails to determine how high to build isn't going to be really beneficial going forward as climate change really kind of throws a wrench into the gears of that approach. So what the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard did and Executive Order 13690 did was to state that agencies had to um, make investments in the floodplains that were done with that kind of future risk in mind. And it really kind of gave agencies three approaches um, to to do that. There was the horizontal. um, uh, Chad, jump in if I'm butchering this. There is the horizontal approach um, where basically if a agency was going to build in the 100 year floodplain, they could uh, build two feet if it was non-critical, three feet if it was critical above the height of the 100 year flood. And then that would extend out horizontally. Um, to make a bigger floodplain, or a depiction of a bigger floodplain. So the fringe areas, which would likely expand as flood risk became more severe, would be captured. So you didn't have the problem of building just outside the 100-year floodplain without any protection. And then 20 years down the road, that's all sudden in the 100-year floodplain. So it kind of expanded the size of the floodplain to make sure more infrastructure was captured and also built higher. Um, Another approach was to do the uh, climate-informed science approach, where basically... They would look at the flood risks or projections for flood risks over the lifetime of the infrastructure and try to build above those projected flood risks, uh, especially in coastal areas. That's where it's really relevant given the projections for sea level rise. And the the third option was to build to the height of the 500 year floodplain. Um, Those three options were were kind of put forward so there'd be some flexibility in how agencies could approach uh, construction given the kind of uniqueness of, of floodplains.
0: So if I can jump in, just sort of summarize, the flood risk management standard said, uh, historically, the Carter version said, try not to build in 100 year floodplains. If you can't help it, then you need to make sure you're um, sort of out of that flood zone. The Obama era uh, policy said, okay, we can't just look back at what has been the 100 year flood zone, we need to look forward because we know the flood zones are changing with increased um, sea level rise and impacts of climate change. And so it created three approaches. Um, One said, You know, build two feet above the uh, two feet higher than the the floodplain. um, If you're a non-critical, three feet higher than if you're critical. Or look at the best available climate data and determine how that's going to impact the flood zone. Or um, just build to the 500 year build. uh, This applies to the 500 year floodplain. Um, So those are your three options. Now, what projects does this apply to? So are these federal projects? Are these all prod every infrastructure project are they federally funded? So, like, what does this actually apply to?
3: One of the things, if you don't mind, if if I could comment yeah, on those on those three approaches as well, uh, I think it's important to point out to the listeners um, that they're really based on. Eminently practical approaches um, that that state and local governments are already um, implementing. Um, you know, the climate informed science approach, for example. Uh, you know, we have communities like New York City, um, like Norfolk, Virginia, uh, that are um, that are using individualized studies to develop local standards and. Um, and, and, and require, you know, uh, even locally undertaken projects to meet those future conditions that way. Um, The freeboard approach, you know, the two foot and the three foot elevation. We have, we, we, we have 65% of the population of the United States lives in a community that uses this freeboard or building at a level higher than the hundred year flood elevation. Um, And, and we've also seen more recently communities using the 500, year flood elevation uh, as the uh, as the uh, protection elevation they want to build to, uh, and and it kind of serves as a proxy for future conditions. Um, you know these may be communities that are getting a lot more hundred year type floods, but um, uh, and and so uh, for example down in Harris County or Houston, um, you know they've they've migrated now to the five hundred year elevation. So I just wanted to point out that that all three of these approaches are are approaches that that actually have been implemented in some communities. It's not some kind of, you know, off the wall, crazy ideas, um, that haven't been ground truth.
0: Thanks, Chad. And I I guess maybe back to Joel or Chad, either, either of you can sort of address that, the question of sort of what does the federal, uh, order apply to, does that apply to local projects or is that just to federal projects? Like who's, who needs to abide by this?
3: Yeah, so so I, I mean, with the executive orders, um, uh, they apply to basically federal actions. Um, okay, if you and and, and uh, if you've ever been a local official, local regulator, local floodplain manager, or coastal manager, um, you you probably know uh, that as is often the case. Um, if you have a federal project, let's say you know you have an army base or something in your community, um, they're often exempt from your local standards. Um, It's just a basic kind of principle of federalism. And so what, what, an executive order like this does is it basically says at the federal level we are going to make sure um, that we are doing things um, that are consistent um, with local standards or in in with the new executive order and the flood risk management standard we're actually going to be leading uh, we're we're going to show some leadership here and say that that federal or taxpayer investments need to be protected to a higher level um, so again this focus back on federal actions. And then I think as you get into the definition um, of the federal flood risk management standard, it really focuses on on direct federal investments and federal projects.
2: Yeah, that's a great uh, point, Chad, about how it's designed so the federal government is really taking a a leadership role. Um, Because as Chad pointed out, many communities and states have already gone forward with um, encouraging higher freeboard or requiring higher freeboard and the federal government's really been behind for for quite a number of years and so this really catches them up and even helps them go a little beyond what, uh, what communities and states are already doing so we sort of you're sort of touching on this a little bit but can you
0: talk a little bit about why this is so important on the coast obviously the coast is dealing with sea level rise but but how is a coastal planner or a coastal manager or or a you know a local community, you know, beach community mayor or, or city council member, why does this, why should they be more sort of more, uh, aware of this standard?
3: (laughs) Derek, I, I, this maybe goes back to, to, to basic human nature, right? We're human beings. We love water. We like congregating around water. We like recreating in water. We like living around water. And so we have a lot more of our homes, our businesses, our infrastructure, um, located, uh, around water and, um, and, and, you know, a lot of demographic trends, um, still show that people are moving to these areas. Um, and so, um, so as a result of, you know, the intensification of development, uh, and, and construction there, uh, it, it, it becomes much more important. It becomes very important, um, that coastal managers, um, you know, not only understand the current risk and all the all the hazards there, but especially future risk. I mean, think about it. You know, we have sea level rise, which is one component of that. Um, but one of the other aspects of climate change is, you know, basically providing um, jet fuel, if you will, to um, uh, to tropical storms, um, a, a warmer climate, warmer water temperatures means more intense storms, and that means potentially higher storm surges. Um, you know, more ferocity when those things hit the coast, um, and so uh, so you kind of have a um, you know you have two factors. You know, in addition to what's happening across the country, which is generally we're seeing more intense rainfall events as well. So when you're inland. You know, we've got to worry about more intense rainfall events as a as a consequence of climate change. In the coastal areas, you have that plus two additional factors to deal with.
2: Yeah, absolutely, I mean that's a a great point to bring up because I think another aspect is that federal investments can also encourage um, further development. And so if you're locating infrastructure in areas that you know are going to be flood prone in the future, um, you don't want to be doing it in a manner that's going to encourage more maladaptive development. And so by uh, this including the new standards in um, place to kind of expand the concept of the flood plan for future risk, you're really kind of setting up development so it's not going to be done in a way that's designed to fail. And for coastal communities, that's, I think, really important, especially if you're thinking about, like, you know, improving your um, drinking water facilities or your wastewater treatment plants or, or your local hospital gets federal like that was built with federal funding um, this is really making sure those decisions about how that infrastructure is built and located is done in a way that's not going to put people at risk I think in the future um, and so that is really I think relevant for a lot of coastal uh, planners as well as emergency management planners uh, in those areas
0: that's a really interesting point Joel I never actually thought about that that even though this doesn't apply to sort of local development, the idea that the federal federal projects, federal development can in fact um, drive local decision making. So if you're, I think one of you mentioned an army base, you know, if you're, if you're building an army base, that's going to drive other, uh, other local decisions. And so you want to make sure that those federal investments aren't um, encouraging maladaptation. So, um, so I, I let off this uh, topic uh, with talking about why this is particularly timely, and I want to get to that. But perhaps we should introduce our audience to you guys. Um, clearly, very, uh, very astute on this flood work, and I know you've both been doing this for a long time. So, um, let's let's take a, a quick sort of timeout from policy and talk about you guys, um, Chad. Maybe I'll start with you. What, what what's your background? You you've been at ASFPM for a number of years. Can you talk about sort of how you got started on on uh, on flood work and maybe give us the, you know, elevator pitch, the thirty second version of what ASFPM is and does. <sighs>
3: Yeah, certainly, Derek, and, and and I have to say, as I look in the mirror, and 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 my birthday is coming up this weekend, I have to say that I'm I'm one of those folks that probably has less of my career ahead of me than I do behind me. Um, been working in flood risk management now for 28 years. Um, worked at it at the state level, um, uh, at the local level, private sector, and now of course uh, here at the nonprofit. And um, I, I think a particular relevance to the um, the executive order is when I worked in the state. Uh, Ohio Department of Natural Resources State Floodplain Management Program, uh, I was the EO 11988, uh, the, the predecessor executive order, state reviewer uh, for a number of years. And so I'd review state projects in compliance with that executive order. So I've been working with the executive order itself um, uh, for, for a lot of my career. Um, but uh, um, but nonetheless uh, flood risk management is ever changing it's, it's it's very interesting and of course it's led me now to the position here at the Association of state floodplain managers um, ASFPM we're a national nonprofit 501c3 organization dedicated to reducing flood losses in the nation uh, we do that through a couple ways um, through some of our uh, through our federal and state policy work a lot of a lot of folks know us um, you know through through doing that and trying to promote policies good public policies um, that that enhance our nation's resilience to flooding. Um, We also run the nation's certification program, the certified floodplain manager for professionals working in this field. We have over 10,000 CFMs in the country. Um, We do training and events. We just had our national conference last week where we had um, a near record crowd of almost uh, 2,000 folks eager and, and interested in floodplain management issues. And then finally, we do applied research and tool development. Um, if, if floodplain managers need tools to do their jobs better, we want to be there helping. Uh, and so our flood science center um, uh, is uh, leads that group. Uh, so all in all, we try to take a really comprehensive ap- approach to floodplain management. We've been around for over 40 years.
0: Thanks, Chad. And, and Coastal States Organization has had the privilege of working with you guys at ASFPM on a number of different projects, and some of which might even be worth uh, doing a podcast on in, in terms of talking about a natural infrastructure uh, approaches to flood mitigation and uh, how we handle repetitive loss in the coastal zone. Um, But that's for another day. Uh, Joel, uh, let's hear from you. How how did you get involved in this? What's your background? And then um, I know NRDC is pretty broad too, but if you could give us the the 30 second pitch on what NRDC is and does, that'd be great.
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, I've been with NRDC uh, since uh, 2014. I've been working there as uh, one of their attorneys. Um, and I, I work in a, on a team called the water and climate team at at NRDC, and the team uh, is really focused on helping communities prepare for and adapt to the impacts of climate change. Um, and as we started off, uh, we, we were really trying to look at, you know, what are some of the major events that are happening now and will happen further into the future that really have, um, a significant impact on people's, uh, Livelihoods, uh, their well-being, and their ability to really um, just enjoy the communities that they live in, and we realize that a big part of that is going to be flooding, um, both because of you know the impacts of sea level rise and the just heavier storms uh, events that are occurring, and so we've invested a lot of time into um, looking at ways to improve basically how communities approach flooding uh, through both the federal level and state and local level. And so we do a lot of work around the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, The National Flood Insurance Program uh, really kind of sets the floor for how communities approach flood risk. So in order to make flood insurance available to residents, um, a community has to join the NFIP and adopt these minimum codes and standards that that address like both construction and development in a floodplain and land use. And so we've been looking a lot around how to ensure that the NFIP is, is more climate smart and is ready for a future of greater flood risks instead of being backward looking. Um, we also look at disaster preparedness. We do a lot of work around looking at how um, some of the uh, FEMA programs under the Stafford Act operate and can help communities um, prepare for those impacts of climate change. Um, I've been doing this, uh, as I said, since 2014. Before that, and uh, I was in law school, and uh, really focused a lot of my um, kind of learning there on how to address environmental hazards, which is why I joined the uh, NRDC. Uh, and before that, I was actually a Peace Corps volunteer in, in West Africa and kind of did the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to climate impacts and worked on how to help uh, communities there uh, prepare for greater droughts and desertification. Um, the Natural Resources Defense Council has uh, been around uh, for over 40 years. It's an international nonprofit that looks at how to basically safeguard the environment um, and protect it for uh, future generations. We do a lot of work on um, looking at to preserve natural habitat, but we also do a lot of work on addressing climate change, both reducing emissions as well as the adaptation side. Um, other areas uh, we focus on are helping communities get let out of their drinking water um, as well as just ensuring that uh, transportation systems are uh, safe and uh, affordable for, for uh, com- communities in the U.S.
0: Great. Thank you, Joel. Um, that's a nice overview of NRDC. I think my mom just thinks of NRDC as the Robert Redford Environmental Group. Um, <laughs> but, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> is one of our board members. <laughs> <laughs> uh Well, uh, Joel,
0: I actually am going to turn the next question to you because I I got introduced to you via some blog posts you wrote this winter um, that were tracking what was happening with the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. So maybe I can turn to you to sort of explain what happened. We've been talking about this Obama era rule as though it's like brand new. um, And that's because it it sort of is, right? Obama put out this uh, 13690, but then the Trump administration rescinded it. And then that's where we get into some of the sort of complications of what happened recently with Biden. So maybe you could give us sort of a a quick and dirty timeline of, of what's happened uh, with the federal flood risk
2: management standard. Yeah, definitely. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, president Obama issued it in 2015 Uh, agencies started going through rulemaking to get it really incorporated into their operating procedures uh, in 2016 and beginning of 2017. uh, And then, 10 days before Hurricane Harvey struck, uh, President Trump revoked uh, Executive Order 13690, which then by default revoked the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. Uh, I I think there was some buyer's remorse within the administration because of the optics of revoking a standard 10 days before a massive flooding and hurricane event in the country. Um, But there was never really any movement on doing anything about that. Uh, And then when President Biden was elected uh, on his first day in office, January 20th, he issued an executive order... Um, that revoked uh, President Trump's revocation of the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. He revoked the executive order that President Trump had issued that had revoked the standard. Um, There was a kind of an assumption, both within the legal community as well as the broader environmental community, that that revocation of President Trump's revocation had by default reinstated Executive Order 13690 and the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. We uh, learned in... um, late March, early April, that the um, standard had actually not been put back in place. There was some concern that it hadn't uh, fully, I guess through legal uh, terms, you could say, became legally valid again. Um, And so President Biden then yesterday, uh, May 20th, issued an executive order that explicitly reinstated uh, executive order 13690 in the federal flood risk management standard.
0: Thanks. So that's the the quick and dirty. We had planned to have a little bit of a conversation about what might happen given this, what we had thought was sort of a a little bit of political limbo or or I guess legal limbo that the federal flood management standard is in. Uh, But it has officially been reinstated. Um, It is very clear that the federal agencies need to implement this. Um, And so I guess maybe Chad, I'll turn it over to you, but either of you can jump in. What does implementing this mean? How quickly can this sort of, I mean, I know it is the law of the land, but obviously from the time it's written on paper to the time it actually gets implemented can take a little while. What needs to happen? How does, how does, it, how does it happen? How does this actually become uh, a, a real thing in, in federal determination?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, You know, so so when we kind of look at the progression of implementation, um, you know, two major milestones were met yesterday. Not only was the um, the flood risk manage uh, the the executive order and flood risk management standard reinstated, but also I believe the guidelines for implementing um, the uh, the the executive order uh, was was reinstated as well. And the reason that's important is because after it was passed the first time. Um, there was a there was a good deal of time spent, um, I, and I'm th- I'm kind of remembering about uh, at least over a year developing guidelines um, for implementations that then agencies would use. Um, and so uh, the fact is now we have a set of guidelines, and so the next step is for every agency to evaluate its programs, its policies, and actions, and actually develop. Um, develop its approach to implementing um, the uh, the executive order and the flood risk management standard. And it's going to vary from agency to agency. Um, there are some agencies that um, we would expect to go through full federal rulemaking, um, where they will actually change their, um, their regulations to uh, comply with this. There are other agencies that maybe um, do more kind of tangential type actions that may Impact that, and so what they may be looking at is simply just changing some policies uh, or some procedures to do that. The the bottom line is every agency is going to be different, but um, I I think maybe the take-home message is just because it was passed yesterday doesn't mean that we're going full-on implementation today or tomorrow. Um, Every agency is now going to have to go through that assessment and um, uh, and and create their approach. Even the even the agencies. That were well on their way back the first time. I believe that um, you know maybe the Corps of Engineers, FEMA, uh, and HUD were kind of the first agencies out of the gate to really kind of be working on this. Um, so it's my own, it's my speculation, but I would expect that those three agencies probably will be on the forefront again.
2: Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree with that, Chad. I, I think that um, in terms of the next steps, it will depend on the agency, but if FEMA uh, and HUD as well as the core had issued proposed rules um, in 2016 and had gotten through the, the notice and comment period and were about to issue final rules before the order, executive order 13.690 was revoked. So a lot of the uh, the groundwork has really already been laid. And so the hope is that those agencies can pick up and really take charge and get this done quickly uh, by uh, having some of that groundwork already laid with uh, getting new rules out uh, for notice and comment. Interesting. So.
0: It's not going to be tomorrow, but it should be a lot quicker than if it was a brand new executive order because those guidelines uh, weren't, as it says in in the one that was issued yesterday, the guidelines were never revoked and thus remain in effect so they can continue the process that they had been working on. But, um, you know, sort of realistically, like, what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, it's going to be two or three months or does that mean it's going to be Two or three years, and maybe you mentioned that some are further along than others. So, if you want to divide that up, like what's the time frame on this?
3: You know, Derek, I I, I might suggest it's it's going to be both. Um, we may see some agencies um, that are able to move rather nimbly and, and get things going, whereas there are other agencies um, uh, that are going to. It's going to take some time. Um, it be, because, you know, there, there are a number of agencies in federal government. And even after the um, the initial issuance of 13690 and the interagency guidelines, um, there were so some agencies that were just slow to even begin to approach it. Uh, so I would fully expect, uh, you know, some of them are going to take a few years, but others we would expect um, much, much faster.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm going to I don't necessarily support the devil's advocate position, but I'm interested in taking your your stance on this. Both of you guys have worked for organizations and have personally been very strong proponents of the FFRMS, but I know there have been organizations out there and I've heard criticisms criticisms of the uh, federal flood risk management standard is sort of too broad, uh, maybe even too open to interpretation. Um, Chad, I know you started this podcast by talking about how this is in some ways just matching what a lot of states and locations are doing. Um, but then it also sort of goes beyond that and pushes the federal government to be a leader on it. So I guess what would be your response to those that say, like, this is something that states and, and localities should be leading on, not the federal government? Um, how is this too open to interpretation? Sort of why, why do you feel like this is the right rule for the, for the federal government?
3: well you know for the federal government and and, and let's just take what Congress is is um, you know debating and discussing right now you know anything from a 600 billion to a uh, 1.8 trillion dollar infrastructure um, uh, program and that infrastructure I, I always take it back that infrastructure is your money it's my money it's taxpayer money and we should expect That investments in infrastructure will be resilient, so that we're not throwing our money away, and so therefore, federal government, the federal government should be leading uh, in in this way. You know, I think one of one of the things uh, with the original uh, with with thirteen six ninety, and and it's a point I to continue to reiterate is that some people, I, I think some of the arguments against it was is like, well, you know, how, how for example, is it going to require, let's say all of our levies to be elevated two more feet or, you know, go to the elevation that, that's required in there. This is a resilience standard, not an elevation standard. And that is a key distinction that I think affords agencies and projects they fund the flexibility to implement that In a way that is appropriate for that, for that infrastructure. So for example, um, you know, even if you're using the freeboard approach of two feet or three feet, it could be that facilities are hardened or more resilient to that versus actually being physically elevated. Um, so that's, um, so the, so in my opinion, the flexibility in this standard, the fact that there are three alternative ways to implement it, and the fact that it's a resiliency standard, not an elevation standard, in my mind, the flexibility is a good thing and should blunt a lot of criticism for the one-size-fits-all approach that the federal government might take otherwise.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I think, too, that um, when it first came out, there was a lot of confusion around uh, to whom it would apply. I think there was a lot of concern that this would mean like every single house you built would have to be in line with the standard. And, and that's not true. It really is limited to federal investments uh, as it should be um, because that's, as Chad pointed out, taxpayer dollars. And so, you know, it's like if you see a flood that happens in, uh, you know, Florida, but you're a, California resident, your federal taxes, though, are still going to pay for infrastructure decisions that were made uh, poorly. And so it really makes sure that people across the nation are protected both from flooding, but also in protecting kind of their investments in that public infrastructure.
0: I really take your point about the flexibility and the need for um, agencies to implement this sort of appropriately is also going to be really important i know when i started working on this i was working um more on on beach restoration and i think there was some concern that like well you'd have to build your beaches three feet higher than you otherwise would which would add expense and like if you're how do you build a beach three feet above sea level like it's beaches are supposed to you know be tidal and be underwater at sometimes um but i think the idea that you can look at uh you can look at the best climate model and you can look at projections. It's not just that elevation standard. It's actually like a resilience standard. I think that was really well put Chad. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I guess I, m- the last question just really is, is there anything else that coastal professionals should know about the federal flood risk management center? Is there anything we haven't brought up that um, that you think we should?
3: You know, one one of the things, and and for those that may have been aware of, uh, and and even kind of engaged in the the original issuance of the executive order, um, you know, in 2015 2016 timeframe, uh, even since that time, we've made a lot of progress. I think in understanding. Um, the, uh, you know, kind of what, what climate-informed science really means. Uh, and, and I think that we've developed some better approaches in terms of how we look at future conditions. Um, so I, I actually am quite encouraged that the climate-informed science approach might might be a, a lot more relevant today than, even what, than it was even five or six years ago, uh, when the science, I think, was still catching up a bit. Uh, and again, I'd mentioned it earlier, uh, and, 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 and I think New York city is just a really good example of this. Um, they have done studies, they know what the future condition is like, and they have now resilience standards that apply to the infrastructure they invest in. And it's tied to the useful life of the project. It makes eminent sense. So, you know, if you have a wastewater treatment plant, that's going to be around a hundred years. You need to look at that future condition. That's a hundred years from now. Um, and so, you know, I think for coastal managers, um, you know, paying attention to the 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 state of the science and 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 just having the ability, I think, to do future projections um, a, a a good bit easier
0: than we could even five years ago is important. Yeah, great point. Thanks, Joel. Anything? Any other thoughts?
2: Uh, actually, that's, that's what I was thinking was that the the science has really improved just in the last five years, and the ability to to do projections, even uh, very kind of regionalized projections about how. Uh, sea level rise may impact different um, types of structures and kind of do different projections based on, I guess you could say, the criticality of that infrastructure um, could be very helpful. And so uh, I, I think this would be a great tool uh, for coastal managers to to really ensure that those commu- their communities are, are safe um, and prepared for sea level rise.
0: Well, I'll just add my two cents that I thought I- interesting that this was, um, reinstated in a climate related, uh, financial risk executive order. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to go through all the other financial risks and I know it tends to be more on, you know, federal spending, but I do think we're going to see more and more of this assessment from how the federal government looks at its spending and how, um, and, and what sort of you know risks it faces and and the same true with the private sector so i don't really know where i'm going with that but i think i think this could in some ways almost be a model for uh future um future policies that talk about how we invest in in infrastructure and other aspects so i don't know where i'm going with that but
3: well it it well and and, and derek you know one of the other aspects that 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 i that I think is a really interesting kind of linkage and potential synergy is, is you know, let's all remember that at the end of last Congress, the Digital Coast Act passed uh, and the Digital Coast Act is really primarily focused on providing actionable information um, to coastal managers and, and folks in the coastal area um, to, to make good resilient development decisions. And so I'm, I'm actually excited to see where how, how this executive order and the Digital Coast Act and the priorities there kind of intersect, um, because I, I do tend to think that the Digital Coast Act may be a vehicle to provide more resources, science, and information to bear to more successfully implement this.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I think one other point I would like to make is that um, what's new, too, about this executive order and the flood protection center in comparison to the one that came out in the 70s is that it also really encourages federal agencies that are making decisions about resiliency to consider nature-based approaches uh, and, and green infrastructure as well. So it gives them a much more broad kind of toolkit to use to look at how they can make those investments more resilient um, versus just traditional means.
0: Well, thank you guys. As with all of these good coastal flood conversations, I feel like we sort of spawn new conversations that come out of them. There's so much more we could touch on with financial risk, uh, how this interacts with digital coast. We mentioned the national flood insurance uh, program and we hardly got to that. And that's a whole nother aspect that we'll be interacting with this. So um, a lot more to learn, a lot more to figure out, but really appreciate the insights uh, from you guys. As our listeners know, we often um, end the call with just a quick you know, personal question. What uh, coastal place, uh, what coastal area, what beach uh, gets you re-energized? I interested, in sort of here, you know, we spend a lot of time working on policy and with our face in front of a computer, but how do you, how do you recharge? Where's that favorite place you like to go? So, uh, Joel, let's start with you. Where, where's your, where's your coastal happy spot?
2: Uh, growing up, I spent a lot of time in York Beach, Maine. Um, my parents and I, with my brother, we'd go up there almost every summer uh, and my parents still have a small place up there that I I like to bring my children to now. And it it was just a very fun, kind of relaxing, quaint beach town. Um, As a kid, there's two beaches really that are part of York Beach, Short Sands and Long Sands. And on Short Sands, there's an old arcade that looks like it's, I think, probably built in an old Quonset hut. And it had all sorts of video games, like you could look out and look at the ocean. And uh, I used to love just spending time at the arcade and then just going out on the beach and enjoying the water, going back to the arcade. And so I really look forward to getting back there now with my own children and, having, and seeing them kind of get that same experience. I would say York Beach, Maine. Lovely. How about you, Chad?
3: Well, you know, I have to credit Coastal States Organization, actually, as introducing me to my favorite beach. Uh, uh, And and a couple years ago, I believe one of the conferences was held in Hawaii, and I um, had the opportunity to visit Kailua Beach um, uh, on Oahu. And um, I would say generally with Hawaiian beaches, I'm not sure there are more beautiful places on earth uh, than maybe some of the beaches in Hawaii um, uh, for for all kinds of reasons. Um, But Kailua Beach in particular is one that um, since that time uh, we've taken our family back there and uh, enjoyed it um, as a family and can't wait to get back there again.
0: That's fantastic. And Chad, I think that might have actually been the first time I met you in person was, was at that CSO event. We might have met before that. But um, but yes, that was fabulous and so many great features in the line. Exactly. Um, well, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening and, and learning more about the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. Take care all.